We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. You know, Christians have a unique sense of time. There's a particular kind of rhythm to a Christian's day, to our week, to, to our year. Take Christmas, for example. In the stores, right, the season of Christmas keeps creeping farther and farther back and beginning earlier and earlier. And lately it seems that the Christmas spirit starts popping up with all the spirits of Halloween. But for Christians, this moment of time that we're in right now, it's not Christmas. It's Advent. Beginning today, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and leading through those four weeks up until sundown on Christmas Eve, We're in the season of Advent. And for for Christians, this is a penitential season. It's a season of penance, a season for self-denial, a season for self-examination. You can understand why um, businesses would want to replace that kind of season with Christmas, right? That's not exactly a lucrative season, self-denial and self-examination. It's a very different season from this kind of commercialized, two-months-long Christmas. The Advent, it just doesn't work for our culture because the engine of our culture is consumption, accumulation, self-indulgence. Now, like I said, we're weird. We have a peculiar rhythm to our year, a unique and distinctive sense of time. Our year is structured around a person, around a historical person, Jesus Christ. And our year, the Christian year, begins today. This is the start of the year. It's the beginning of the Christian year, this four weeks and some change, this season of preparation for Christ, this preparation to celebrate the actual birth of Jesus Christ, both in Bethlehem those many years ago, and in our lives, and is coming again. And then for the Christian, the calendar, it hits Christmas, which for Christians is a 12-day-long celebration. You know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, or the, the poem? Well, it starts on Christmas Day, and it goes for 12 days. Why? Because one day is just not enough time to celebrate the one in whom the whole universe has its existence. So for Christians, Christmas lasts from sundown on Christmas Eve all the way through to January the 6th. And then we go into a season called Epiphany, a fancy word that literally means manifestation. It's the time when we celebrate the manifestation of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And it centers on when those three wise men, or however many they were, showed up to the place of Christ's birth, and they are the first non-Israelites to recognize that's God in the flesh, that's the Messiah. They're actually the first people to articulate that view. And it's just kind of a foreshadowing that Christ is not an ethnocentric God, but he's a God for the whole world. And then we have the season of Lent, this 
40 weekdays leading up to Easter. It begins with Ash Wednesday and it culminates in Holy Week. And it's the the period of time that we enact and remember the final days of Jesus's life before his resurrection. And isn't it coincidental that Lent, like Advent, doesn't find its way into the Hallmark calendar? Because it doesn't contribute to our culture. It subverts our culture. It challenges the very heart of our culture. So it gets lopped off and we start having Easter bunnies long before we're even ready to understand what he's all about. And then for Christians, Lent leads us to the center point of our year. The moment in our year around which the entire universe bends. The moment in our year around which all of time and all of history pivots the hinge of all things, the resurrection of Christ. And then we go into the season of Pentecost, this 50 day long experience from Easter day all the way through to when we celebrate Christ's ascension into heaven. Now, you can either structure your year around Hallmark's calendar or the academic calendar Or you can structure it around a very distinctive notion of time. A notion of time that is shaped around a person. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. This first century Jew who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And born of the Virgin Mary. Who suffered under Pontius Pilate. And rose from the dead after three days. And and then what does it say to us in the Apostles' Creed? He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, now that's the Apostles' Creed. But what I want you to notice is that it's narrating a particular vision of time. It's locating Christ in time. It's saying that Christ was a physical person that suffered at the hands of actual governments. And so we, the church, we gather on Sunday to worship this God. Not some esoteric God that floats around out there in some ahistorical heaven, but this God that has made a dent on our calendar. And during this season... We remember once again that he's going to make a dent on calendars once again. What I'm saying is that for Christians, we've got skin in the game of when your week starts and when your year starts. That there's a lot going on theologically when your daytimer puts Sunday at the end of the week instead of the beginning of the week. As Christians, One of the ways to understand who we really are is to ask us, what time is it? It's to ask us, what's going on? I've been thinking lately, think about a line, or, or more accurately, a ray. A ray is determined by two things, where it begins and what else, what it's pointed at. And think about our Bible. It has a beginning and it has something at the very end that it's pointing at. You see, at its most basic level, Christians have a particular view of time. We confess that it had a beginning and we confess that it has a distinctive ending. 
We believe that God made it. That time, that creation, that this universe begins with God and it pivots around God when he came in Christ at his crucifixion and resurrection. And that time will be completed when Christ returns to make everything new again. Now, this is the heart of Advent. And it's the heart of the three passages of Scripture that were read to us earlier. You see, the season of Advent, it's a ritual that we go through so that we can learn to once again become Israel and to recognize our sin and to recognize our need. And and as we put ourselves in Israel's shoes, waiting for the first coming of Christ, as we put ourselves there, we see that we're just as desperate, just as needy as Israel. We're just as broken. And as we go through the rituals of Advent, as we remember in this profoundly kind of shaping way, as as we remember what Israel went through, as she longed for Christ, you know what begins to happen? We begin to long and hope and wait and call out for and beg and pray for the coming of the Messiah into our own lives all over again. You see, the season of Advent, it's all about rituals of desire. It's rituals that are designed to affect us deep in our hearts because at our fundamental level, we are not thinking beings. No matter what Descartes said, at a fundamental level, we are lovers. That is our primary mode of existence. We love. And our brokenness is not that we've stopped loving. It's that we've loved the wrong things. In the season of Advent, it's designed to prime the pump of our love. or It primes the pump of our heart. It tunes our heart to love and long for the right things. But if you give yourself to this world's calendar, your heart is going to love something. But it will be the wrong things. Your heart is going to love things that give an ever decreasing measure of satisfaction. But if you allow Christ to prime the pump of your heart to long for his kingdom, right? Isn't that the most basic commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart. See, the most basic commandment is not to think the right things. It's to love the right thing. Jesus did not say, seek ye first the right things to think about. He said, seek first the kingdom. Love the king. The problem is not that we stop being lovers. It's that we love the wrong kingdom. We love the wrong vision of the good life. We love the wrong vision of what life is all about. And you will pursue your loves. Whatever your heart is pointed toward, you will pursue. And what I'm saying is that Advent is a whole series of rituals that are designed to point your heart to the right kingdom. The kingdom that if you seek it, your heart will no longer be restless. This is Advent. It teaches us to reenact Israel's longing for the right for the coming of the king. And year after year after year, we follow the Christian calendar and we are trained to expect the kingdom of God. 
Listen to Israel's prophet. Listen to Jeremiah. This passage that was read to us just a few minutes ago. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 and 16. And as you listen, you're hearing Israel's longing. And I hope you're beginning to have this kind of longing too. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. And he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you hear it? Advent is this time where we, you know that old Negro spiritual, were you there when they crucified me? No, you weren't there physically, but there is a type of remembering where you are there. Advent calls us to a type of remembering where we are there with Israel, where God shakes us out of this kind of complacency that the academic calendar or the Hallmark calendar lulls us into. A complacency that focuses on the here and now. But Advent, it orients us to the future, to Christ's return. Not so that we can escape this world, No, we long for Christ to return because we have a passion for justice. I think the most common word uttered in my house right now is fair. That's not fair. Do you remember when your kids were the age of my, can you imagine five of them at the same basic developmental stage fixated on fairness? Where did they get that from? It is an echo in their soul of a voice that was knit into them when they were made a cry for justice. We don't have to learn that cry. We fill it well up within us every time we go through the um, Civil Rights Institute and we see the injustices that occur. The world cried out after the Nazi Holocaust and said never again. Why? Because we have an innate sense of justice woven into our fabric by our creator. We cried out never again. But you know what was happening at the same time we were crying that out? Rwanda was going through another genocide. And we as a world realize that no matter how greatly we advance technologically. No matter how smart we are. We can't stop this stuff. We long for justice. At the same time, apartheid is tearing the soul Out of South Africa. We were crying out never again. See we look to the future. Because we as Christians were taught to pray. God's will to be done on earth. As it is in heaven. And so we begin our year as Christians. In Advent. Remembering Israel's desperate longing for Christ. And as we do that, we learn to long for Christ to come once again and to complete his work. To put away forever the powers of evil. To make everything right and whole. This is the hope we learn to hope in Advent. It's the sure hope. Of a future when justice rolls down like waters 
and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Advent, it trains us to cry out for that vision that Christ taught us to pray. Thy kingdom, not my culture's kingdom, not my vision of the good life, thy kingdom, your vision of the good life, thy kingdom come, thy will be done right here on earth, not in some far off place I'm going to escape to, but right here on earth, like it is in your dimension, God. If you give yourself to Advent, it will Train your imagination with a vision of the kingdom of God. And whatever vision of the good life shapes your imagination, that's what you work for. That's what you live for. It's what wakes you up and gets you going. Advent reminds us That the end of the world, in the words of R.E.M., is not the end of the world. It's the end of the world as we know it. And the beginning of this world as we long for it to be. Listen again to the words that Alan read out of Luke 21, verses 25 through 31. Luke chapter 21, verse 25. This is Jesus talking about... The moment of his second coming. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth. Distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things began to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads up. Christians, don't be perplexed. You raise your head up because your redemption is drawing near. Here we have Jesus telling us about the cosmic signs that will lead up to his second advent, his second coming. The moment when he, the son of man, comes. It makes everything whole. It makes everything new. And in this paragraph, we, we don't have time to do it, but virtually every phrase of this paragraph, Jesus lifted word for word out of the Old Testament, out of the Hebrew scriptures, out of the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah that I just read to you. In other words, he's telling us that his first coming was just part one. He's telling us we're in the same story. This coming that the Jews were looking for, it's really protracted into two comings. We're in a similar place to Israel. We put ourselves back there where Israel was so that we can learn how to live faithfully in this moment that we're in now. We are waiting like Israel for the advent, the coming of the Messiah. Look at verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, things I read in the previous paragraph, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That, that phrase, this generation, it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around. Was Jesus wrong? I mean, evidently that generation stopped, right? Now, honestly, were any of you thinking that? Let's be honest. Raise your hand. None of you? Tim was. You and I. The only skeptics in the room. Very good. Here's the deal. This is chapter 21 of a novel, of a book that Luke wrote. And he's been using this phrase over and over and over again. And by the time you get to chapter 21, if you read this book as a perceptive reader, he's already told you what this generation is. He uses it over and over again for a category of people who time after time resist the purposes of God. In other words, he's using this generation not about a particular decade. By the time you get here in this book, he's already defined this generation, not so much as this people that live while I'm living, but saying this type of people who stubbornly refuse God and his purposes. Jesus is saying to us, there will always be this generation. There will always be these types of people who resist me and resist my purposes. He's saying to you, fellow Christian, there will always be suffering. There will always be embarrassment and humiliation. It will continue until Christ returns. So how should we live in these kinds of moments that we live in? He says in verse 34, watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and strength to stand before the Son of Man. Now, like I said, this is the heart of Advent. Advent teaches us to wait, but not a passive waiting. Right? Not like you're sitting on the park bench doing nothing, waiting for the bus to show up. Advent is a time of aggressive, active, participatory waiting. It's a time when we call out to God, break into our lives, break in, God, break into my selfish patterns of behavior, shatter my self-centered pursuits, soften my heart. It's gotten hard. You see, Advent is a time of repentance. It's a time to recognize our sins and our needs. It's a time to long for and to hope for and to pray for Christ to be birthed anew in our hearts. To be born all over again in us. It's a time for us to renew our journey away from that old life. It's a time for us to renew our journey away from that life where we live under the powers of evil. It's a time to renew our journey into the new life. The life lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. So you've got a choice. Are you going to let the stores tell you what time it is? Or are you going to let 
the church who has been thinking about time for millennia to say to you, this is what you need to spend the next four weeks doing. Advent is a season to assess the current state of your faith. Advent, it's a season for you to assess the current state of your living. It's a season for you to recommit or perhaps to commit for the first time to an unconditional surrender to the Lord Christ. And like I said, for some of you, this commitment of unconditional surrender to Christ, perhaps it needs to happen for the very first time. For the first time, you need to embrace the heart of all these rituals that constitute Christianity. For you to go to the heart of it and find there at the heart, not a dead formalism, not a dead ritualism, not some kind of culturally cohesive institution, but Christ himself. And embrace him. And like time itself, to bend the warp and woof of your life around his death and burial and resurrection. To live for Christ and to die to yourself. For some of us, this commitment is something we've done many times before. And we need to do it many times again. For all of us. The passage of scripture we heard read first, Psalm 25. I can't think of a more appropriate psalm to begin Advent with. It's really a prayer. Now, what I want to do is I want to read it one more time. And as I read it, you're welcome to follow along in your Bible or in in one of the pew Bibles, Psalm 25. It's kind of in the middle. Or to just listen. But I want to challenge you. As I read it. Let your heart fill up the words. And let the words fill up your heart. And let it be your prayer to God. It's an incredible prayer. Of preparation. For the return of Christ. Psalm 25. I'm going to replace the singular pronouns. With plural pronouns. To turn it into a prayer on behalf of all of us. To you, O Lord, we lift up our souls. O God, in you we trust. Let us not be put to shame. Let not our enemies exult over us. Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. They will be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make us to know your ways, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. But don't remember the sins of our youth. Don't remember, God, our transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember us. Remember each of us individually for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. O good and upright Lord, you instruct sinners in the way. 
You lead the humble in what is right and you teach the humble your way. All of your paths, O Lord, are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep your covenant and your testimonies. Amen.